Great, good to see you all. Um, if you've got a Bible, we're uh, it's probably last year sometime, I can't remember the date, we've, we've, uh, we've looked a few times, this is part five of uh, looking at Exodus 34 and just asking the question, uh, what's God like? And uh, it m- might seem a strange uh, question to you, but um, people say things like, um, I couldn't believe in a God who dot dot dot, or... Um, I prefer, this is a good one, I prefer to think of God as dot, 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 as, as if God would say, all right then, well, if you don't like me being like that, I'll be, I'll be something else. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a kind of, it's preposterous, really, and yet that kind of phrase gets used uh, quite a lot. Yeah. And, and, of course, the danger, the danger with that is, is we end up with a God who looks ever so much like us. It's funny, isn't it? You kind of think, I don't like a God who this, don't like a God who that, and I think he might be like this. And then you look at this God of imagination, and uh, he looks very much like a European 20th century <laughs> liberal us. And, and that's kind of, it's really a kind of a, a modern idolatry, really. I mean, we don't tend in, in the UK to do much uh, carving and setting up of stone temples. We, we don't do it that way, but it's very easy to end up with a God of our own imagination. So we've been looking at this, this revelation that, um, that Moses had. And um, uh, it's a funny thing, but we tend to think, oh, Israel knew all about God. But of course, they didn't always know all about God. That came to them gradually over the years. And at the time of the Exodus, they, they knew that their forefather, Abraham, it, his God told Abraham to leave. Uh, and then his, his kids eventually ended up in Egypt. Uh, because God was uh, helping them survive a famine. Uh, but they didn't know that much about God. They knew what their parents had told them, that their parents had told them that their parents... The God of Abraham. Oh, yeah, that God. And so Moses uh, Moses says, well, who are you, God? And, and, uh, and God says, well, I'm the God of Abraham, and I'm the great I am. I'm the one who's always... I'm consistent. I'm always the same. And then they get there, and this is a... a, a they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments now. And Moses is longing for more information. If you've got a longing to know God, that's an absolutely great thing. If you've got a desire to know more of him. And that's what Moses had. And so Moses prays, God, show me your glory, which means your power, your nature, your, your beauty. Show me more about your character. And uh, God basically says to him, look, if, if you saw me face to face, you'd just die. You couldn't, you couldn't stand it. I'm way too big, way too mighty. Uh, but, but I'll tell you what I'll do. You, you can kind of see the back of me as I walk away. Because that's the kind of language that God used. And, and so Moses, uh, Moses goes up the mountain and, and it says, God proclaimed. Moses said, show me your glory. And God says... I'm going to proclaim my name, my character. The, the glory of God is what he's like. He's, he's, that's his glory. He's wonderful. His character. So we've been looking, it's a bit of a long introduction, we've been looking at that bit by bit, but not for quite a while. So Exodus 34, I'm going to read verse 5 to 7. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name or character. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, always God unchanging. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. That's 
feeling, a feeling word and a doing word. He feels compassion towards us and, he's, and he acts compassionately. He's gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Uh, and uh, it's the next bit we're going to look at today. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Uh, and then Moses bows down to the ground and worship. Now it's really tempting to rush to the last bit, I think. Because I've, I don't know about you, but I've naturally got questions about that. Because you think, if God's really compassionate and generous and gracious and loving, how can he possibly have a downer on the kids for their parents' sin? So we'll get to that, don't rush me. We'll get to that bit because it's, it's puzzling and it's right to puzzle and struggle and tussle with these things. But let's, let's back up a bit and work our way through from the beginning. And, and I guess we have to start by saying we can't pick and choose the bits we like. Said that already, it's very tempting, but we can't do that because why can't we? Well, because Jesus, for a start, took the Bible really seriously. Yeah. He said, I've, I've come to fulfill or complete all of the law, so we can't kind of pick and choose. If we our submission to the Bible as a church is part of our submission to Jesus, he took the Bible seriously, so we take the Bible seriously because we submit to him as Lord and Savior. And secondly, we do end up if we pick and choose bits of the Bible that we like, we do end up with a God who looks very much like ourselves, as I've already said. I think if we keep struggling with Scripture honestly and openly, then in the end we find that God is bigger and better than we ever thought he was. Very good. Uh, but it's a struggle sometimes. And sometimes there are things we think, oh, I, don't get, I don't get that. There's mystery in it. There's things that we, we struggle and struggle and very learned minds still don't quite understand in a way that they can explain to us at least. So, so that's by way of introduction, but let's work our way through. Firstly, it says God maintains love to thousands. And the last time I spoke on that, we looked at that word love. It's hesed, it's a Hebrew word, and it's translated sometimes loving kindness or steadfast love. And it, it's a committed word. It's a, we don't have covenants much. The nearest we have to covenants are, is the marriage ceremony now, where someone says, I do and I do, and it's legal, but it's relational. And that's God's, God's covenanted, he's promised, a sacred promise. I, I will love you. I have steadfast love towards you. I, I don't know about you, but I totally rely on that. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I mess up. We'll look at that as we go through. I, I mess up fairly regularly. Ask Debbie, she'll tell you. Uh, but God is a God of steadfast love. And it says, um, the previous talk, the previous verse, it says, he abounds in such. It's not that just, you know, even pirates can do loving things sometimes. You know, even bad people can do good. But, but this comes from his very nature. He is about, he is about, it's his nature. Yeah. It's not that, well, sometimes he, sometimes he throws you a bone. He'll throw you a cross. No, no, he's abounding in love. Super abounding in steadfast, faithful, loving kindness. And here it says, it's a strange phrase, it says, God maintains his love. And the actual word is, is it's, a, it's a picture word for like a century, that God stands watch like a century over his love. He protects his love, he guards his love. Yeah. I think it's a, great, it's a great picture, isn't it? God stands guard to preserve and protect his love relationship towards you. Isn't that good? 
So, in other words, when you get careless about your love for God, he stands God over his love for you. Isn't that good? You're in the grip of a gracious God. So he, he's protecting his love. It's fierce. I, re- I think God really wants us to understand. I think the Christian life is a lifelong struggle to understand that God is much better than we think he is. Yeah. And he's not at all like That's the God we imagine. It is. is. It's a lifelong struggle to get rid of this imagined God and get the God of the Bible who stands guard over his love for you like a century. century. Now, we often pray that God's love will protect us. And And it does. He does. He does protect us. But this is God watching over his own love. You know, in life, you can get careless about love relationships, can't you? You can kind of just assume on love or, or, or neglect your love relationships or, or get distracted or, or, or whatever. God's not like that. He stands guard over his determined love for us. Sometimes we have a kind of fickle love or a distracted love or an up and down love. He has a determined, armour-plated love towards his people. And I, I think that's wonderful. That's worth rejoicing over, isn't it? And it's, and it's not just you. He says he maintains or watches over his love to thousands. And, and, and thousand in the Old Testament was kind of the biggest number they had. Yep. So it's, it doesn't mean that when you get to, you know, thousand and one, he's run out of love. It's not like that. It's, his love is immeasurable. His love, he maintains his love, not just for a few favourites, not for a few people you might see at the front of a conference, but to thousands upon thousands to innumerable numbers of people. So what a God. Yeah. Wonderful, isn't it? Just wonderful. Uh, the second, then he goes on to say, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, I, I have to acknowledge, don't very often focus in on that, that kind of things. We're not a very heavy-going church. Uh, but I'm so pleased that God forgives sin. We talk yeah. about that quite often. But we don't usually focus on it. Forgiveness, you know, some people think, oh, forgiveness, isn't that what Jesus brought? In the Old Testament, God's a bit frowny, he's a bit stern, I'm not sure I like him very much. But in the New Testament, Jesus came and God turned over a new leaf or matured through the ages or something, became a bit more mellow. That, that's not the Bible at all. Right. No, no, the word forgiveness is all through the Old Testament as well. And God yeah. remains holy in the New Testament as well. Yeah. Ask Ananias and Sapphira, you'll find out. But he forgives. He forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. And the word forgiveness, the Old Testament word for forgiveness, is a great, uh, great picture word. It means he carries it. He carries away. That's a, that's a very vivid picture. What does it mean to forgive? It means someone, you, you carry that sin away. That's a huge Old Testament kind of signpost pointing through the ages towards Jesus, who is Yahweh come in the flesh. Yes. You know, in the Old Testament, it says, oh, you couldn't look upon my glory. In the New Testament, it says, uh, we saw Jesus and we beheld his glory. Come on. Je- Jesus is, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Yeah. And here it says he forgives. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I, I'm thinking of that. Do you remember um, they put the cross on Jesus and then they put Jesus on the cross later? You know, as Jesus carried the cross on his shoulders... He also allowed the sin of the world on his shoulders to take it away at Calvary. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's what forgiveness is, that someone else has carried away our sin. 
That's why, do you remember the phrase John the Baptist used? Where at the start of Jesus' ministry, as he came to be baptised, John pointed him and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away, carries away the sin of the world. Well, what does, what does Jesus take away, if we ask him? He takes away wickedness. I looked it up. It's a kind of catch-all phrase, wickedness. Can carry any bad behaviour, looking at no one in particular. Hands up if you've ever, over, ever overstayed your parking time and got out quick so you don't have to put in another 50p. <laughs> hey! Oh, there's a baptism of modesty. <laughs> I'll stop at some point asking for hands up. <laughs> hands up if anybody that's got an endorsement on their driving licence for thinking they're in a 40 but it's a 30. Oh, drop your mic. Sorry. Anybody got any endorsements on their driving licence? Can't be only me. Oh, good. Cool. There's, there's two of us that are honest. That's really good news. Oh. It's a catch-all phrase, wickedness. Those that have you know, cheated on their tax form, those that have got a parking ticket, those who've lost their temple, through to those who've robbed a shop, committed mass murder. It's a catch-all phrase. He forgives all wickedness. Rebellion, what does that mean? He forgives rebellion. Rebellion's a kind of court, courtroom word. It means to break the law. You know, when, when you really know, either because you know God says or because your conscience is telling you, you know what you should do, but you think, oh, stuff it, I'll do it anyway. Ever been there? Oh, good. <laughs> I'm feeling much better. <laughs> we, did, we are, we, we sometimes are just rebellious. I know I shouldn't do it, but I just want to. I'm going to. That kind of thing. He forgives rebellion. Sin is an archery word. A lot of these complicated words are just pictures, really. It means to miss the mark. How many of us, how many of us ever, have ever thought to ourselves, well, I'll never do that again? <laughs> yeah. And what happens? You do that again. Exactly. Or the opposite way around. I, 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 I'm going to do this from now on. New Year's resolution, from now on, I'll do this. But we, we miss the mark. We draw our bow with good intentions, but somehow we, we fall short. We miss the mark. We go, we go wide. Modern parlance, we just mess up. And, and we do. That's an, he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There's two other Bible words that aren't in this verse, but I'll chuck them in for free. Um, it's transgression. Transgression is that, it means stepping over the boundary. I wonder if there's anyone else like me. When you, if you go to a, a National Trust house and you see keep off the grass, you've got, just got this inbuilt instinct. You think, that, that grass was made for picnicking on, for running on. I want to play five-a-side football on it. And, and I wouldn't have thought that if it wasn't for the sign, keep off the grass. Okay, that, that's what transgression is. It means we know there's a limit. Stop here, but we just, we just well, I want to. Something in us. Transgression. Another picture word. Iniquity is, is, means a kind of inner crookedness. It's like the bowling ball. I've, I, I've got my uh, Debbie's aunt's bowls balls. I think they're in the attic, aren't they? But, you know, one of those crown cream green bowling balls, you know, it's got a bias in it. So it kind of sets off in that direction. You, you have to set it off way over there because there's a bias. And that's kind of there's a bias in the human race. <laughs> there's a bias to go a bit wonky technical term, morally, in terms of decision-making. And God forgives all of those. That's the whole, the whole five, all the words. 
God forgives wickedness, rebellion, sin, transgression, iniquity. He carries, not, it isn't just, well, we've brushed that under the carpet. No, no, much more thorough. He carries it away. He put it on the shoulders of Jesus and we can be forgiven. God forgives. And it's not even that God forgives, because again, quite evil people can sometimes say, ah, forget it. It's, it's not that, it's that he's forgiving. It's in his nature. It's what he's like. He is forgiving. It flows from him. It's an eager part of how and who God is. I think that's so wonderful, don't you? I think it's worth praising God for, being thankful for, taking advantage of. It's also deeply reassuring. But now we've got to go on to the other half. We get there, we get to the horrible bit. The other side of this is that that grace and forgiveness and love doesn't mean that God is careless or casual about sin. God, God is not a slacker. And sometimes churches like ours that talk much about the grace and the forgiveness of God, and I'm thrilled we do, enjoy being his children, so, sometimes th there can be a tendency to, for people to wrongly think that means you're casual about right and wrong, that it doesn't matter whether you sin or whether you don't sin. Well, the, the next bit of this verse is the antidote to that. It says this, yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Or the ESV says, he will by no means just clear the guilty. So, so where does that bring us? Well, it brings us to a God who's forgiving by nature, but at the same time, he's just. We might use the word fair. He does, in other words, God is really forgiving by nature, but he doesn't let the guilty off the hook. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's, where, that's the God of the Bible. And the truth is, of course, Many people don't get forgiven because they deny being sinful in the first place. I mean, that's 20th century Europe, really. It's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to be forgiven if you don't think you're sinful. And there are a few sins left in the Western world to be quite honest. There are a few things that people, I mean, what's absolutely wrong? Probably child abuse and murder. Not much else. Most, because we're very liberal, we're very easygoing, we're just, just a choice, isn't it? Our Western society denies things like Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. That's seen as a kind of little bit old-fashioned, little bit religious in our post-Christian world. Now, God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Of course, some people know they're sinful and just don't care. They know they're a bit messed up. They're just, just hardened. But what this verse says is God doesn't turn a blind eye. He forgives wickedness, etc., but he's just as well. He doesn't let the guilty off the hook. Now, we in, in, in the liberal West, we struggle with that. Actually, in Bible times, they struggled more with God being forgiving. <laughs> why? And the, the psalmist saying, you know, why don't you mash the guilty? <laughs> that was more the, the, where they were in their society. Our, our society is a bit different to that quite often. But, you know, God's justice is a good thing. Yeah. This is a difficult verse, but God's justice is a good thing. Why? Because God's end goal is a world with no evil. That's the end goal. Read the end of the book. It's really good. That's God's end goal. It's not that God is vindictive. It's that he's responsive. He's sensitive. If we turn to him, he responds with forgiveness. But if we don't turn to him, at some point, he'll respond with justice. Now, he's very patient. 
The Bible says he's really patient, super patient, not wanting anybody to perish. That's great. That's good news. It's the day of salvation. He's being patient. But at some point, God will be just. And you know, the truth is, if we're honest, justice answers our deepest longings. Yeah. I remember standing in the post office once and um, there was someone that had done some atrocious crime. I think, I think it was in the States and, and um, one of these mass killing things. And there was a, a, a death sentence handed down. I'm not commenting on the, the politics or rightness or wrongness of that, but someone in the queue, uh, I overheard saying, oh, death's far too good for them. And <laughs> I, kind of, I understood that, that kind of, there was an instinct for justice. Justice answers our deepest longings, even though it's a scary verse. Yes. That, don't we all want to live in a world with no slave labour? Yep. I think we do. With no dictation, dictatorships, with no drunken violence, no ethnic cleansing, no suicide bombings, no abuse, no stabbings, no thieving, no lying and cheating, no sex trafficking, etc. Et that's, that's because we're made in the image of God and we long for something that's fair and just. And one day as believers, the Bible says we'll live in that kind of world. Can't wait. There's a, there's a longing to, to be somewhere, there's a sense the Bible says we're, we're strangers now. We've been born again. We kind of feel strangers in this world because we belong somewhere else. One day, sin will finally be judged completely fairly and ended. So if, we, if we've trusted in Jesus for forgiveness, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear judgment because it's, our sins have been taken away at the cross by Jesus. And we can look forward to Jesus returning to end all evil in a new heaven and earth. So, that, I mean, that's a huge subject dealt with over very quickly. But God is just. He's completely just, but he forgives wickedness and sin. And, and then, then that gets us to the tricky bit. The tricky bit that we, I mentioned at the beginning. He, what does it mean he punishes children for the sins of their parents. I mean, that's, that doesn't sound fair. Well, let's work through it. Firstly, it can't mean exactly what it seems to mean, because, Jesus, because Moses says exactly the opposite in Deuteronomy 24. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Each will die for their own sin. In other words, Moses is saying, God likes personal responsibility. You're responsible for your own life. Your children don't carry the can for you. You don't carry the can for your children. So, so, so is he contradicting himself? I don't believe so. Jeremiah, interestingly, a bit later on, when the children of God have been in the land and they're now going into exile as a discipline for their, for their neglect of God, uh, he combines uh, both verses, Jeremiah 32, 18 and 19. This is what Jeremiah prays. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for parents' sin into the laps of their children. That's a, that's a really interesting expression, isn't it? And then he says, you reward each person according to their conduct, as their deeds deserve. So he's combining both of Moses' statements. You bring the punishment of parents sin into the laps of their children, but each person is responsible for themselves. So, so what does he mean? 
Well, here's, here's three suggestions. Firstly, and most obviously, parents' sin affects their children's future. Yeah. Isn't it true? We all, we all know that's, that's true. Parents' sin. So if, if parents neglect worshipping God, their children grow up not, not worshipping God. That, that's just the kind of consequence, isn't it? It's, it, it's you know, you, you sow and you, you reap. Jeremiah was talking in his verse to a generation whose children were going to grow up in Babylon in exile, even though they'd only just been born and hadn't sinned, because of the sins of their parents. So, so to some extent, our children grow up in the world that we create for them. That's all he's saying. It's consequences. Our kids suffer the consequences. If we're always bickering, our kids grow up thinking it's normal for mum and dad to be always bickering rather than just occasionally bickering. <laughs> if I end up in, in, in prison, my, my kids will grow up fatherless. That has consequences. Whatever, however we are, there are just consequences. Our kids suffer the fallout. So that's one level of meaning. Here's another slightly curious thing, but it's my observation that sometimes particular sins can kind of run in families. Don't understand it. So one generation's sin can become the next generation's sin. And you hear people saying things, strange things like, oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Things like that, which I always thought, eh? <laughs> but it's kind of like father, like son. Similar saying, isn't it? But it's not fatalistic, you see. If we turn away from the sins of our fathers and say, God, forgive me, and, and renounce those sins, get prayer maybe, then we can be free from it. But, but he's just saying... This is what happens. I think the deepest meaning is probably this. Because God is persistent, he will either keep forgiving or keep punishing sin in every generation until it's eradicated. God is determined to live in a world without sin. And then it says, to the third and fourth generation. The word generation isn't actually there in, in the Hebrew. It's to the third and fourth. And uh, scholars have pointed out that there's a kind of couplet thing going on. And it's like this. He maintains love to thousands and forgives their wickedness and sin and so on and so forth. And he punishes, children, uh, punishes the children to the third and fourth. Do you see the contract? If you, if you can imagine a scale, mercy on one side and forgiveness and grace, justice on the other. Both are true. Both are aspects of God. He's just. He's holy punishes sin, and he's full of mercy. But, but what, what the writer's kind of saying is they're kind of unbalanced. They're kind of unbalanced. Mercy and forgiveness is shown to thousands. Punishment, three or four. Do you see? Do you see what we're saying? No, in, in, uh, when you see statues of justice, he's got, he's got a blindfold on, and they're always kind of equal. Because that's the, that's the law, legal system. God is, God is much better than the legal system. Yeah. God, God is full of, fully just, but, but he's inclined to be so merciful. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know what your view of God is, but that's what he's saying. Mercy to thousands. Yeah. But, but don't be casual about sin, because there are consequences, three or four. Three or four. So your sin affects you, but it affects three or four others. Yeah, no man's an island. What, how you behave affects others. So there's a caution. 
about sin. Don't be casual about sin. Don't, don't be careless about sin. Bring it to God. Be open. Be honest. Ask for his forgiveness. Turn away from it. Renounce it, even if it's your parents' sin. God, I don't want to be like that anymore. Get some prayer. But, but that was three or four influenced by our sin. But mercy, thousands upon thousands. They're unbalanced. Both are true, but God is weighted to the side of mercy. Where sin abounds, this is how the New Testament puts it, grace much more abounds. Literally, super abounds. So God is not mocked. There are consequences for our sin, not just to us, but to others. But he maintains love to thousands. Well, we've got to, we've got to uh, finish there, but let's have a little so what. Let's kind of la- land, practicalise. Is that a word? Is now. <laughs> Firstly, if we've sinned, if we've any of those five categories apply to us, I'd suggest all of them probably do. Then ask God for forgiveness. Yeah. He forgives thousands. Mm. Why? Why not us? If you've never asked God for forgiveness, why on earth not? Ask Him for forgiveness. Jesus took all his our sins of the world on His cross. What? What do we do? We come to Him. We simply come to him and say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm trusting in you. I want to make you the Lord of my life. Secondly, if we've done that, let's bask in his loving kindness. You don't need to hand back when there's a prayer, prayer time or a worship time. You can come in. Why? Because another person, all those things you feel guilty about, another person has borne them away. You're his child. You're accepted. You're forgiven. You don't need to hang back. You can fully participate as a child of God forgiven and cleansed from your sin. Thirdly, if, you, if, you've, if you've got a sin that is a blooming nuisance to you, re- renounce it. Get some prayer if you need to. So I'm really struggling with this. Re- renounce it. If it's, if it's you know, somebody else's sin that affects you, the parents, the way they've behaved affects you, ask someone that you know and trust just to pray for you together. And let's look forward, as I'm sure we all do, to a world in which God has judged and done away with sin, the home of righteousness. That's going to be wonderful, isn't it? Amen? Amen. Amen.